you know, we're having a lot of fun. And at the end of the day, we're taking really scary, really confusing, really expensive shit and making it simple and free. We're running a marketplace, right? We're trying to find the innovators and we're trying to help those innovators on the employer side and provider side accelerate the shift to what we realize is the member first healthcare economy. We want to build a healthcare marketplace that's so logical that both employer and employee and family member are making their decisions based on three big criteria, cost, quality, and convenience. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Solving Healthcare podcast. This is Mike Andrade, and I'm happy and excited to welcome Jim Milloway, the co-founder and CEO of a company called The Zero Card. The Zero Card is a unique company, and many would say they're turning healthcare on its edge with their unique approach to helping individuals get same or better care for literally zero dollars out of their pocket. Jim has an extensive background in employer-sponsored health coverage with a career spanning positions at some of the largest healthcare systems in Oklahoma. And also in part, he was a partner at an independent consulting firm that eventually was acquired in May 2015. There's plenty of accolades to go with him, and I don't want to make too long of an introduction because I think you'll see with what we're talking about today. He's the real deal. He's got great expertise, and his company is one that you should be thinking about implementing. Jim, last time we talked, you were excited as F because you got the equivalent of a lot of money and we're expanding in multiple locations. Yeah. So, you know, we've raised money three times before or three times overall now. This past year was the first time we took on institutional investors. So in late November of 2019, we raised the Series A, $7 million, participation from three venture funds, one on the East Coast, two here in the Midwest. You know, looking back, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. You know, going out in the middle of a pandemic and asking people to write big checks is a far different story than asking people to, you know, write big checks when things still felt normal to everyone. So we were beyond lucky to get that close when we did because it gave us the runway and the capital where we weren't focused on the survival of the business as much as we were growing. That being said, we took a huge hit, right? And we still haven't recovered from the pandemic. But, you know, thankfully we were able to secure some money from the PPP loan program, which has allowed us to 100% avoid any layoffs or furloughs. Wow. What's funny is, so I'm talking to companies now that before they would have just said, hey, we're kind of fat and happy. That wouldn't have been their words. But essentially, they just presumed that the law of the land was you go to a marketplace, you pick stuff off the shelf, and that's how you shop for health insurance, right? And now when people are more reticent to listen because of the fact that they just need cash, right? And so I would just presume that that paints a great picture for you and your business, but also kind of raises the game that wherever you have marketplaces that you serve, that means you've got to do a more active job of recruiting providers and and filling those gaps so that when people need you, you're there for them. Yeah. And I think that's a fair point. You know, I mean, we built the organization lean, right? Because we're still a startup. We've survived because we've been thoughtful and focused and resourceful mm-hmm. and not over exuberant or overspent. So we run a pretty lean shop as it is. But I think you bring up a good point. When you're in the business of elective procedures, right, which is when we're in, and virtually every marketplace that you operate in, whether that's Texas, Oklahoma, Illinois, Colorado, you know, Arizona, has some sort of decree, either at the city level or the state level, that elective procedures are off the table. That takes a huge impact on your business, right? Employers rely on us to make it easy for the plan members to find the highest quality, most affordable providers. 
there's simply no matching to be done when those providers can't deliver any of those services. So it's interesting, right? We run a marketplace business, right? It's no different than Etsy or Airbnb, where we're just making matches. But because of the virus, we saw completely manufactured supply limitations just wasn't there. So whether people wanted to be a good shoppers or not, if they came into our virtual store during those times and it started to come back, there simply wasn't anything on the shelf to buy to begin with. Well, yeah, great point. My fault. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I didn't yeah. think that went through, but I just know that on the employer side, as they're running lean on cash, are they wanting to make sure that they're as fiscally efficient as possible? There's just a new story to tell about finding cash and finding ways to distribute it appropriately and make sure that you're getting the right value for that dollar. Where in our space, it's not necessarily been accurately portrayed in relation to cost. It's just, it's a nebulous number. And so we think because somebody tells us that they're great in quality, that they're the best and they're not really. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point, right? So employers of all sizes and shapes and industries and regions, they're going to be looking at all kinds of expenses. I think what bodes well for healthcare as a whole, and this is healthcare done right, this isn't big healthcare that's built to extract as many billing codes as they could off of a single patient, mm-hmm. but healthcare that really focuses on cost and quality, right, and the patient experience, will be positioned well in a post-COVID world because employers are absolutely going to have to be more thoughtful about their costs. I think maybe for the first time ever, but certainly for the first time with a lot of emphasis, I think the days of cost shifting and raising deductibles and narrowing networks and all these symptom controls to fix the underlying problem aren't going to work because every single one of us is going to have to be much more thoughtful about how our employee benefit plans and the design of those plans impact the actual humans that work for us. And will this start to be the end of high deductible health plans and HSAs and a lot of constrictive measures that are financial tools and not healthcare tools? I think so. You know, I mean, We run a marketplace business, but at the end of the day, we work with employers and we work with direct primary care providers and surgical hospitals and some of the largest health systems in the entire country. And our job isn't just to make these matches. What we're trying to do is we're trying to find the innovators and and what can we do to help accelerate the shift to what we view as a member first healthcare economy. Yeah, yeah, I get So, Jim, let's take a step back because I think we kind of jumped a little bit ahead. But in terms of the problem itself, I know what, what we typically talk about on the podcast is we quantify the problem, we quantify the magnitude of the problem, and then we talk about your company and the solutions that you provide. And so, can we take a step back? And, and I know we're going to talk about healthcare cost and price variability. I want to know from your perspective the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So we're trying to solve a couple of problems. And so if you think about it, right, we're trying to move people from the old to the new. How do we build a program that's actually designed for employers and most importantly, employees? And if we go back and we look at legacy incumbent or just legacy health plan designs, I think we have three kind of big problems. There's really bad design. Most benefit plans are are designed on this one-size-fits-all model. Everybody, regardless of age, income, marital status, kids or no kids, is on the same deductible, right? And every employer is roughly choosing from the same kind of legacy one-size-fits-all models. Well, you mean like off-the-shelf stuff. So I go to the, yeah. I get a, a limited number of boxes that I can choose from. And regardless of income, regardless of anything, that's your choice. And you're going to make the decision based on the price of those boxes, uh, when, when you actually yeah. care, that, that's when the problem starts, I think, is what you're getting to, right? 
Right, yeah, so we've got this first kind of thing of bad design, right? It's not built for me as an individual. There's bad delivery. So that universal approach has really created a bloated, underperforming healthcare marketplace, which is already in trouble because it's opaque by design. We're not sure what the cost is. We're not sure the quality is. And I think when you take bad design and bad delivery, we're guaranteeing bad experience. So those things also, the bad design and bad delivery create these things for health plans to be seen as attractive or competitive. So we have to cover as many possible providers. And we've got to have everybody in network and you know it has to work this way. And none of those things are designed to produce the best of cost, quality, or convenience for the plan member. Yeah, so I'm curious, you said something that I, that I always like to talk about or just something that most people, in my experience, when you talk about the opacity or opaqueness in pricing, I try to say that again three times fast, but yeah. most people don't understand like how much healthcare costs vary. And you're in a unique spot where you get that kind of data all the time and you're in the clarity business. And so what are you typically seeing? And give an example from a pricing opacity where you just say, okay, same service, either same box or same exact thing, variation in cost. What do you typically see? And give some examples. The only thing I can tell you that we typically see is wild variation. You know, just when we think we've seen the worst price we've ever seen, we we set a new record, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so the world of healthcare, especially for employers, is often a world full of data with no information. Mm-hmm. So all kinds of long, pretty reports, but unfortunately, they don't tell us what to do. And so part of our job is to help employers and the brokers and consultants and advisors they work with turn data into information, into suggested action, and ultimately into measurable impact. And when we do that, we ingest huge amounts of raw claims data to get to see what the prices are, just as you mentioned. We look across 44 or so clinical categories, so think orthopedics, GYN, ENT, and about 3,000 unique procedures. I was looking at an analysis this morning for a group that we're working out from the Midwest, which is a consortium with a handful of employers that represents about 6,000 covered lives. Mm-hmm. One of the places that they could save the most was advanced imaging. Within those advanced imaging studies was specifically one, which was an MRI of the brain with contrast. We saw the plan allowed amounts. So this is after the discounts and after everything's been repriced. We saw there were about 165 occurrences of this MRI. We saw those allowed amounts as low as $400 and as high as much as $8,000. And that's not crazy variance. In our database, we've looked at a little bit more than a half a million patients and about $3 billion in spend. And if I walk you through it, it doesn't matter if you were in Chicago or Houston. Every histogram looks the same, right? No matter what the procedure code is, we've got a bunch that are decently priced and then that hockey-shaped curve. And it's these outliers that are not better quality not better outcomes, right? It's because people are shopping in an opaque market. Well, yeah, and also it's because leveraging takes the consumer and the purchaser out of the middle, right? Simply because you're allowing a a third-party carrier to negotiate with a third-party hospital and keep all of us deliberately out of the middle in terms of being able to discern, do I really want to pay that much more for the same service? An economist would be quick to point out to both you and I and anyone listening, right, that People spending other people's money on other people don't necessarily do a great job of managing that. Agreed, totally. And so you said there were two things. So the first is plan design. The second is variation in price. And, and, and what was the third, or did I miss this? No, so bad design, bad delivery, and ultimately the bad experience. Okay. I think the pricing variation, the quality variation and stuff are all outputs because of the bad design, the bad delivery, and the bad experience. Gotcha. 
So the bad experience, meaning when the doctor tells me to go down the hall, I like to say that those are the four most expensive words in healthcare. The doctor says, go down the hall. There's not really a lot of support from saying, hey, Mike, instead of going down the hall, here's some options for you to consider. And then also, if you need to know from a qualitative perspective, how to figure out where to go, that that's even more opaque than figuring out what it costs. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so on the employer side of the market, right, we've got to build data tools and technology, right, that help it that help employers make smarter overall purchasing decisions. When you look at it at the micro level, employees and their family members need help. I think if there's one thing that most Americans grossly and underappreciate is how efficient the system is of moving people to the highest cost setting as quickly as possible. We exist in the middle right, to help the plan member make more informed decisions. You would hope and what we're pushing for and what we believe the outputs of a member-first economy really are, are the best combination of cost and quality and convenience. You mentioned the point that cost is hard to come by. We've commoditized costs in the sense that we've told every plan member they don't have to worry about co-pays and deductibles and co-insurance. You get access to care for nothing out of pocket. Quality is tough. We've had great success working with Quantros which allows us to look at hospitals across the country and say, who's great at knee replacements? Who's great at hernia repairs? And to be able to take that data, not just from the hospital level, but down to the physician level. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do in terms of an advocacy program for the employees. So we might feel real high tech to the employer purchaser, right? We have to have a really high blend of high touch for the plan member. Yeah, understand. And I think that's part of the value of what you all bring to the table. Because when you think about what a network is supposed to do, they're not necessarily supposed to discern quality. The ask that most plan sponsors have wanted in the past was, hey, I need a broad network. So get me as many providers as possible and I'll just deal with the consequences. Where what you do is you're going to use price and quality as a way to discern where people should go. So you still want folks to do what they do for a living and focus on that. But at the core, if I know that you guys are discerning providers based on quality, they have to do certain metrics. And that quality standard that you use being Quantros, one of the best, if not the best in the country at doing what they do. Well, you know, that's another checkbox for me and saying, okay, I can build my trust. And I can reach out to you because I know you're going to help me in a way that my doctor can't. Because most doctors have no idea the quality rating of the people they send down the hall at all. I mean, I know we haven't really talked about what you do yet, but I just want to make sure that since we're talking about that now, we preface. I think that's a great point, right? And so whether you're looking at a marketplace approach like, like ours, or whether you're looking at a direct primary care approach, right, or centers of excellence, like all these things are solutions in the benefit stack. None of these things work entirely on their own. The more symbiotic they are, the better the results for everyone. And the networks have a place in there too. Right, like to your point, the networks were built for a specific reason for the employer purchaser that knows that their employees want broad access to everyone in the market. When you have cancer, right, or you have a premature baby, right, or you have these really costly, complex things that we're not involved in in our marketplace, you absolutely 100% need that choice. And so that's why we've had great success not competing with any of the networks, but rather sitting alongside of them and letting the plan member make the choice. Do I need the big network today? Do I need the marketplace approach tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. So with that being said, you had made a couple of statements. I want to talk about what Zero Card does. And so you had made some comments about doing a claim analysis. So give me at a very high level, you're talking about 
100% of services. Let's just speak medical because I don't believe you guys do pharmacy. You're in the pharmacy space yet. Is that correct? So we'll do some mail order pharmacy, but this is generic, right? So this is non-narcotic, non-specialty. Okay. So you do do some pharmacy, but in just the non-pharmacy space, so just the medical side of the house, give me an idea of how many procedures or what, what's the total percentage of procedures you try to cover using your quality cost negotiation strategy. Does that make sense? Yep. Great question. So 44 clinical categories, orthopedics, GYN, lab, imaging, physical therapy, about 3,000 specific procedures. What those 3,000 or so procedures translates into is generally between 25 and 30% of the total medical spend. Okay. So Now, have we seen it as high as 40? Yes. Have we seen it as low as 15? But we expect to be you know, a little bit more than a quarter of the healthcare spend. Within that healthcare spend, we know the direct contracts in the marketplace, you know, having looked at hundreds of thousands of patients, on average generate 46% savings versus what the historical allowed amounts have been. So you're taking that 25 to 30% and making it like 15 to 20%. Is that correct? Okay. What does that mean if I'm a consumer? Like, how do you benefit me as a consumer? So from a consumer standpoint, we give you a really high-touch avenue to help you make more informed decisions. And on top of that, we give you access to the care you need for no Mm out-of-pocket, right? So when your doc decides you actually need to get a CT scan, you know, because they're not sure what's going on, or you've been limping around forever and it's time you have to get that ACL repaired, we help match you up with a provider in your marketplace. And then we'll waive all the co-pays, co-insurance deductible because the plan is going to cover it at 100%. In the midst of that, our personal health assistants, which is a team of real humans, you know, that operate here in Oklahoma, but serving all of our markets, but they're out of our Oklahoma office, help people make decisions. Is the imaging center close to work? More convenient. Is the imaging center that's open at 10 o'clock at night more convenient? And we help handle everything from the initial referrals and consultations, right, to the transfer of medical records and anything the member or a family member might need throughout the course of treatment. Okay. So... What I've heard you say, first and foremost, is that for the member, it's free. Doctor says, hey, you need an MRI. Hey, you need knee surgery. Pick up the phone and it's free. So if I'm facing a $2,500 deductible, $5,000 out of pocket, that's a legitimate major incentive to me because it's paycheck protections. And the incentive for the employer is if it costs the employee substantially less and you can influence our decision, they're going to save money as well. But then also there's, there's an advocacy service to essentially help employees make that decision, right? Because most of the time, they're going to say, yeah, I'm going to trust my doctor because my doctor says go down the hall, where you're going to help people make the decision that's right for them. And then do you fulfill the appointment as well? Yep. So we'll help schedule the appointment. We'll help transfer medical records. We've built our own referral application, GoZero, that allows us and our direct primary care partners and other third-party vendors working with the employer, the same thing, a 360-degree view of the patient. So we know when people are being scheduled. We know if there's been a delay, if something's been canceled, right, what we need to do. And so that personal health assistant isn't just booking that initial interaction with the healthcare provider, whether that's a specialist or a health system, they're along the way, right? So if you have questions, you can call. If you have questions, you can email. If you have questions, you can chat live. And I would imagine in that space that you would have a certain amount of folks that would be apprehensive or maybe that maybe this thing it's too good to be true or if it's zero cost you're sending me to like some doctor in mexico or something like that and i know that's not the case but i would imagine those are things that you have to overcome so what do your customers typically say about you and what are some typical customer service 
reference point that you can use to help put people at ease that when they call you, you're better than what they have right now? That's a great question. So we started tracking the patient experience in 2017. We were under the impression that people were going to like us just because we were giving them access to care for zero dollars out of pocket. So we've already got a leg up there, but what was the experience really like? Could we improve it, right? And most importantly, how likely were people to recommend us to a friend, family member, or coworker? So we track patient experience in the marketplace using Net Promoter Score. So for those people that might not be familiar, Net Promoter Score is a really simple, straightforward way to gauge loyalty of a brand. So you ask people on a scale of zero to 10 how likely they are to recommend you, right? The nines and tens are promoters. Sevens and eights are passes and six and below, they're not fans of you. You would expect host healthcare rate based on some SAT metric scores to come in the 12 to 14 area. And then you would expect the other people that were the highest performers to be there too, right? Nobody beats Tesla because everybody that has a Tesla recommends a Tesla to everyone they come into contact with. We've been tracking this metric through surveys after every single patient interaction for a little over three years now. And we've been able to continually keep it going upward, and we sit at a 94 right now. So we're beyond pleased with that. When we started the business, right, I knew there was an opportunity for us to solve this massive problem around design, delivery, and cost. I underestimated the human impact this business was going to have, and I still read every single survey because I'm curious what the results are and the things we hear back from people. People often don't understand how many hardworking Americans and how many folks in the middle class in this country are effectively uninsured. When I'm making 30,000 bucks a year and my out-of-pocket's 5,000 bucks, it might as well be 50,000. Understand totally. That's great to know. And last time we talked and last time we worked together, I think it was either a really, really high 80s or very, very low 90s. So that's actually a big jump, even within the last six months. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. We might've been at 92 when we talked to you, but I know. Yes. So Mike Smith, who runs our member success team, so that team has been incredible and they jumped that from 93 to 94 in Q2 of this year. Wow, that's awesome. So, so hey, walk me through because there's going to be a few other decision makers in the process. So I want to talk about the employer experience, but then also in terms of the doctors and providers, if you're saying, hey, I'm going to cut your costs in half, how do you sell that to doctors, right? And so walk through the employer experience. What is the typical story and outcome that you have with your customer partners? I'll talk about the employer side of the marketplace and then the provider after that. But, you know, from the employers, right, we're selling a data-driven platform that makes it easy to make good decisions, right? And makes it easy, really easy to track the impact of those decisions, right? So the same type of data funnel that we talk about internally at ZeroCard and even externally over and over, data to insight, insight to action and action to impact. Mm -hmm. We talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the call, but I think this is more relevant now than ever. Because this isn't just a financial cost-saving tool, right? This is a huge benefit for the employees. And I think if we've learned one thing from the pandemic, right, it's the old legacy healthcare system, right, is designed to be really, really reactive. It's not designed to produce the best experience or outcome for the plan member. And so solutions like this, right, or like direct primary care or other things that are member first speak a lot more to employers right now. From the provider side of the marketplace, we're not trying to race to the bottom. So I'm not coming to an ambulatory surgery center or a large healthcare system and saying, you've got to be the cheapest in your market. Because we know there's price variability and this variability swings sometimes 500, 600, 1000%, we're just racing to fair. 
And if I can keep plan members out of the top quartile of facilities, right, that are charging the crazy rates, then everybody wins. Where an employer gets savings, business intelligence, and a new benefit for their employee, the provider equally wins here, right? They're just looking for a different set of measures. So they get new patients. They get new patients without any accounts receivable attached to them. So there's no co-pays to chase and deductibles you're never going to get, right? If you and I owned a hospital, we'd wake up one day and we'd have 10,000 Jim Millaways that all owed us 1200 bucks. We're talking new patients. The patients clearly have a big incentive to come see our providers because we have pockets. No accounts receivable. And then we pay quickly and cleanly. We've taken what's an attractive cash market and turned commercially insured patients into essentially cash payers for these healthcare providers. Yeah, and so who owns the decision? Because when people go into a hospital system, the provider, so the person actually doing the procedure, they're along for the ride. So they get paid pennies of the total cost as a percentage. You get what I'm saying? But I'm assuming that you're dealing directly with the surgeon or directly with the provider that will make the choice on the best place to go from a facility perspective. I'm assuming that's part of your, your value equation. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, a great question. So, you know, we work with providers of all shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. So we work with some of the largest health systems in the country. Okay. Those agreements are at the facility level, but we have agreements in place with the physician groups underneath those. So even though we're always going to have a facility contract, the first point of care and the first touch is going to be with the actual physician. So we not only hold bundled payment contracts at the facility level, we also hold payment contracts at the provider level. So when I find out as a plan member that I need to go get an ACL repair, I call zero card and we're not telling you, okay, here's necessarily the surgical facility we can go to. We're saying, here's the choice of surgical facilities, but here's the surgical groups underneath that. And our first referral is actually to the physician group. While we do have contracts with huge systems, most of our providers, right, when we think about surgical and even advanced imaging and physical therapy and things are with physician-owned entities that are smaller, really nimble. So these might be an independently owned ASC that's owned and run by physicians. Understood. Thank you for that clarification. So I want to talk about the places where you do business now. You mentioned Chicago, Houston, Oklahoma, Arizona, but where are you now in terms of your service footprint and where do you see yourself in a year, two, three, four years from now? So I'll kind of go in a weird kind of geographic loop, right? So if I go Houston, Dallas, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Kansas City, Chicago, Rockford, Illinois, home of Cheap Trick, (laughs) Denver, Colorado, Phoenix, Arizona. So we operate in those nine essentially MSAs or metropolitan statistical areas is how we look at markets rather than cities. We're in nine right now. We're likely to open one or two more this year when we're looking for what qualifies or identifies a new market as a good one for us. We're looking first and foremost for great relationships and distribution through our broker partners. We're looking for world-class care, right? That is often driven by a large physician-owned orthopedic hospital or cardiovascular hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll probably open two more of those this year. So we'll end up at the end of the year, probably between 10 and 12 markets. We'll continue to grow, scale, and hopefully gain more and more market share in those markets. And then sometime in mid to late 2021, we'll go out to our existing venture funds, additional venture funds, and raise a new round of funding. And after we've learned how to not only identify a market, but how to open a market, 
how to launch a market and how to scale a market, then we're likely to go open between 20 and 50 markets across the U.S. as a result of that funding round. But we're likely, you know, between this nine and 12 thing, right, for the next 18 months. All right. So uh, answer me this, and who are typical customers for you? Is it uh, mostly in those geographic footprints or multi-state, multi-site customers? So we love geographically clustered customers, mm-hmm. right? So we'd like people to have everyone in one place, right? Simply because it's easier for me to operate a marketplace where the buyer and the sellers are all together. If you're in multi-state and suddenly I'm in multiple markets and a lot more than my nine, our typical customers between 500 and 2,500 employees, of course, self-funded. If they have an HSA, not much participation on the HSA, so 30% or less, mm-hmm. and geographically clustered. And then we love people that have some form of either virtual on-site or near-site direct primary care networks. You know, one of the things we didn't anticipate when we started the company was the prevalence of public sector customers. So about 65 to 70% of our business is the public sector. So we do a lot of work with cities and counties. Some work, we probably have 15 or so state universities. Mm -hmm. Independent school districts have been a huge customer and we've been able to do some really good work with them. So I think we work with close to three dozen independent school districts across those markets. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that would make sense. But also, I mean, I would imagine any company with people is going to be a great fit. But manufacturing, any type of work where they're going to have a higher predominance of musculoskeletal, that's going to be a great fit for you guys. I don't mean to suggest that those other ones, that they're not in that space, they won't be. But it just seems that you're probably not trying to channel specifically within public sector, but they just seem to be the biggest ones with the highest geographic concentration. And so they've probably been easier to collect at this point. Is that is that a fair statement? They had, and they've been great customers, right? And, and they're dealing with real problems. So this cash crunch that I think the private sector is going to face as a result of the pandemic, like unfortunately, the school system has been facing that cash crunch for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it's how do I get more with less? You know, school teachers, and I think, I certainly know after trying to homeschool my children, my five and eight-year-old for the last two months, you know, like they should be making somewhere between like a billion and a billion and a half dollars a year. But, you know, these are people doing absolutely wonderful work and they've chosen to work environments where they're never going to be handsomely rewarded in terms of option grants or equity or big cash bonuses. And so the benefits are a critical part of the total rewards for that. And has it been fun and enlightening and really fulfilling to help those people? Absolutely. But I think we've solved a really big problem for them, which is we've already under this cash crunch that everyone else is about to go through. So how do we accomplish more or less? But how do we do it in a way that's thoughtful for the employees? Yeah, yeah. So um, I typically ask the question of how you make money and how transparent you are about the money that you make. All right. We're very transparent. So if you think about our customers, it's a mid-sized self-funded employer. Mm-hmm. The feature says we're matching people up with the highest quality, most affordable. The value prop is we're going to help you make better decisions and give you access to care for free. We make money charging a 15% transaction every time we process payment to a provider. We work almost like a mini TPA in the sense every one of our customers has an underlying health care plan. Blue Cross, Aetna, UMR, Maritain administering that plan. Just like the funding request you get from them, you get a funding request from us, mm-hmm. right? When we send you a funding request, we tell you not only what occurred and what the prices were, we also tell you what our fees are. And so fees are 100% transparent and fees are actually line item on the funding request. Okay. 
think I get that. So what I'm hearing you say is you don't make a dime until people actually start using your service. And then based on how it's contracted, you're getting to fairness and you're cutting out just a lot of the excess, the, the higher price costs and just the waste that's within the healthcare system. Exactly. Yeah. No, no risk on the fees, right? So no PEPMs or setup fees or none of this. I don't want anyone to, to have to take a bet on this. Do I pay ZeroCard $20,000 a month in PEPMs in the hope that people use it? No, I think that's nonsense. You don't need to do that, right? We only want you to pay us when we're creating value. So if, if nobody uses it, you're going to fire us anyway, right. right? But at least in our case, you're going to fire us so you won't have spent anything on. It really has kept the incentives you know, for our internal team and our external partners really well aligned in the sense that like, we don't even keep the lights on if our employer customers aren't winning. Right. I got you. Um, so how do you validate your claim? Uh, you know what I mean? Because I imagine you're going to get a data request up front and you're going to say, here's a tremendous amount of opportunity looking at the areas where you can add value. But at the end of the year, when, when people start calling you, the poll to free, I would imagine that is a pretty big poll. And knowing how you guys communicate it, it's pretty exciting to see the, the look on employees' faces when you get to tell them, hey, look, you can get the healthcare you need and you don't have to go into hawk or think about, do I pay rent or do I get healthcare? And I, I've seen that in the faces of my customers. And that's just, I'm grateful to be able to provide that experience to them. But on the back end, the employer is going to hold you to a higher standard of saying, okay, show me how you save me money. What, what do you typically see as an outcome and how do you validate that? So that's a great question. The most important thing driving the outcome is the work our client success team, right, which is a hybrid of account management and marketing and education, the work that they do in conjunction with the HR benefit purchaser, right? So are we telling an effective story? Are we making this easy and accessible for the employees and their family member? And that certainly drives utilization and utilization drives savings. But of course, at the end of the day, the most innovative employers are going to be the ones to hire us. But the most innovative employers are also going to be the ones that are watching their money. Mm -hmm. and saying, how do I know that I'm saving money? And so in addition to utilization reports and savings reports that we give back to all of our employer customers, twice a year, we do a subsequent claims review of what's going on in their existing health plan. And again, we can say, okay, when we're doing what we call in that case, the missed opportunity analysis, we're answering two big questions. One, how effectively are we at moving people to the right place? But two, what are you still paying for these prices and what do we see happening to them? So we'll use their actual data to not only find more opportunity, but to also inform our algorithms, which say you paid $325 for the CT scan, but historically the price for that was $11,125. I got you. Knowing that you were uh, in a prior life at a very successful consulting firm, I'm sure you've had several of those meetings where the carriers will come in with this huge stack of reports. And they've slapped down the report and say, your people are sick. And I call those so what moments, right? It's like, okay, they're sick. So what? So what are you going to do about it, right? What I'm hearing you say is you're coming in with a stack of reports. And you're saying, hey, look, this is the carrier report. How do we activate these people that are going here so that we can essentially swing them in the direction of saving? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, but we're actually using real claims data, not necessarily the carrier report. So we're going to look at it and say, okay, for your population, it's probably not very likely on your radar that physical therapy was one of the top 10 places to say, because right. you're not worried about things that cost 130 bucks. But in the case of physical therapy or lab or things like that, severity is often driven by frequency, right? So for your population, we got to go focus on physical therapy and we need physical therapy providers on these five corners and these five zip codes to get it done. 
for another employer, right? It might be women's health. For another, it might be, you know, joint replacement. But we'll use the data to inform where to go. And the data is a wonderful tool to measure our success and our failures. Yeah, yeah. Understood. And uh, Jim, understanding we're running out of time. If I missed anything that's essential to your business, that is a crucial part of the the overall equation to the promise to your customers. We're running a marketplace, right? We're trying to find the innovators and we're trying to help those innovators on the employer side and provider side accelerate the shift to what we realize is the member first healthcare economy. Mm -hmm. We want to build a healthcare marketplace that's so logical that both employer and employee and family member are making their decisions based on three big criteria, cost, quality, and convenience. And if we can nail all three of those, we think we're going to be okay. That's awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Solving Healthcare. My hope is that you found some value that you can use to apply to your plan and to help save money for yourself and for your employees. If you'd like more information on what you can do and other creative strategies that you can employ to keep your plan costs low and keep a competitive workforce, give me a call. Number is 832-236-8966. Or you can email me directly at mike at solvinghealthcare.net. Thank you.